Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we are thrilled to have Panacea Financial as a sponsor for this episode. Panacea Financial is a bank that was actually built by two practicing doctors who wanted better financial options for doctors and doctors in training. Yes. So I can give a little story of my own. When I was a resident, I was actually in my second year of MedPeds residency. I had an unexpected cost of a couple thousand dollars that I had to finance. Um, And um, it was really difficult to try to find a way to avoid credit cards. So what I did was I talked to banks and asked for a couple thousand dollars in loans. And they looked and they saw that I had lots of debt. I wasn't making lots of money. I didn't have a strong credit history. And they were all going to only lend me money if I had a cosigner. And they were only going to give me interest rates that were really high in like the double digits. And I thought this was absurd. And so that's why we set out to fix that. And for instance, we have what's called a PRN personal loan. And it's like what it sounds like. It's your money as needed. But um, we don't have any cosigners. We don't have any origination fees. We don't change your interest rate based on your credit score. And so we built something that was really catered to our community. If you want to find out more, go to panaceafinancial.com. We'll link that info in our show notes as well. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. Also, this episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. So click on the link in the show notes, answer three questions and get CME credit. And with that, on to the episode. This is Dr. Marty Fried. And this is Dr. Shari Trivedi. This is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast. Bring you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we are discussing one of my favorite subjects in all of internal medicine, alcohol hepatitis. Yes, I am so excited. And we want to just give a quick shout out to Dr. Sean Burke, a hospitalist at Case Western, as well as Dr. Indira Bavsar Burke. Yes, they are married, who is a hepatologist at Cleveland Clinic, who did a ton of work behind the scenes for this high-yield episode. No doubt. Word up to the doctors, Burke, for their effort here. (laughs) Trey, I have news for you, actually. What is that? So we've commonly heard of this illness referred to as alcoholic hepatitis, which is sort of a stigmatizing title. And there's this push to refer to it as alcohol-associated hepatitis, which I'm actually totally into. So in this episode, our listeners will hear us refer to that, alcohol-associated hepatitis, or ALKEP for short. Nice. That is much appreciated. And I think one of the other things that I thought about before making this episode that I was surprised to hear was that now one in five Americans actually report heavy alcohol use as a coping method for pandemic-related stress. There's a pandemic with alcohol-associated liver disease, and this is going directly linked with the pandemic with alcohol use disorder. This Everything got, you know, we had a feel to the fire with COVID. That's Dr. Kavish Padadar, a hepatologist at Indiana University. Yeah, so pandemics on pandemics, right? It's the inception of pandemics. So now is as good a time as ever to review alcohol use disorder and one of its most severe complications. As you listen, quiz yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, Diagnosis of Alcohol-Associated Hepatitis. What tests and notable history points help you in the diagnosis for alcohol-associated hepatitis? Pearl 2, differential diagnosis. What other etiology should be ruled out? Pearl 3, 
the importance of nutrition and alcohol cessation. Why are nutrition and alcohol cessation so critical for the treatment of ALCEP? Pearl 4, steroids and prognostication. To steroid or not to steroid? That is the question. And Pearl 5, the throwback pearl. What are the medications to use for alcohol use disorder? So let's get started with a diagnosis of alcohol-associated hepatitis. The textbook definition of alcoholic hepatitis is a recent onset of jaundice with at least a total bilirubin greater than three. Most of your patients will have a bilirubin far higher. They typically have a high AST. The AST is greater than the ALT and it's less than 400. Then you think your patient has alcoholic hepatitis. That's Dr. Elliot Tapper a hepatologist at the University of Michigan. Shrey, the diagnosis of ALCEP is something I've always struggled with because I'm a guy who likes tests. <laughs> I like to know what I'm treating with some degree of confidence, and we just don't get that with ALCEP. What we do have is lab patterns that are suggestive. Oh, I feel you. And then on top of that, you get this like vague story that someone stopped drinking a while ago, and then you're scratching your head. Why are they feeling crummy now? And why is their Billy and ALT all of a sudden up now? And they need to have onset of jaundice within eight weeks of their last drink. So they can be drinking all the way up until your presentation or maybe two months prior to their presentation where their last drink was. Ah, I've always found this so perplexing and couldn't help but wonder why someone's last drink could be, you know, a while ago. And then they develop jaundice and these LFT abnormalities weeks to months later. Good question. So alcohol-associated hepatitis is an immune reaction to what's going on. So the pathophysiology, when you think about it, one, you have direct insult, and then once the liver gets damaged, these dead tissue then recruit inflammatory cells uh, to come to the liver that can lead to further damage. And finally, in the gut, alcohol actually disrupts the tight junctions within, within the gut. These tight junctions um, get loose, uh, bacteria and its products, the immune cells in the hepatocytes, typically Cooper cells, will recognize this and again recruit more inflammatory cells to come in and cause damage. So, really, you know, alcohol associated hepatitis is immune mediated syndrome. And, and hence, that's why we use anti inflammatory agents to control the inflammation within the liver. Nice. So, ALCAP has some pretty complex pathophys, but the bottom line is that ALCAP is an immune reaction to alcohol. And that that inflammatory reaction, that immune response can take up to two months or so to be precise for all those immune cells to gather their troops and travel to all the places they need to to wreak havoc. Ah, that is so interesting and also kind of frustrating, but it does raise a good question. How much alcohol is too much alcohol? The first is to say it takes a ton of alcohol to cause alcohol-associated cirrhosis or hepatitis. And if that's what your patient has, they were drinking too much for them. In a nutshell, you need the, uh, the alcohol contact we talked about. So more than uh, 40 grams per day for a female and then more than 60 grams per day for a male for greater than six months. Okay, so if a standard drink is 14 grams of alcohol, that equals about three drinks a day for women and roughly four drinks a day for men. That is actually a little bit less alcohol than I would have otherwise expected. Yeah. So maybe it's not the amount of alcohol as much as it's the 
amount of alcohol that's persistent over that six months or so period. And it's that persistent insult is what's causing that immune inflammatory response. But honestly, I've also seen so many variable stories and variable timelines. And I think people will come to this condition through a variety of pathways. One is definitely going to be new onset binge drinking with an abrupt increase in the amount of alcohol. That is a surefire way to develop alcoholic hepatitis. Number two is that you will have people who have consistent amounts of alcohol, but it is now extra toxic to their liver. In one case, I can't really explain why that would happen, but it does. And in the other, what you'll see is that people will start to feel more depressed or they'll get sick and they'll start eating less. And because they're eating less, they become more malnourished. And then quantity for quantity, that alcohol is more toxic to their body. So we'll talk more about malnutrition in Pearl 3, but with those variable patient presentations in mind, Dr. Tapper had some really good pointers on some high-yield questions that he asked when he's initially learning someone's story. I know that they're drinking a lot, so it doesn't matter to me to pin down the precise amount of alcohol. I'm really interested in what was happening over the last few months. And what you'll start to learn is, one, what were some of the triggers that led them to particularly risky drinking? Two, how depleted they are nutritionally. And then three, you'll get a sense of some of the other things that they were using the alcohol to cope with. It could be dental pain and they'll have comorbid abscesses and all kinds of things that are going to be super important as you decide on your therapeutic strategy. Ugh, so much good stuff in there that it makes me want to say ugh. <laughs> like, like it's, it's just so good. Hold on. Uh, I just want to highlight how understanding those triggers and habits associated with drinking is going to be so helpful with a view towards a future on prevention. Yeah, and I also want to shout out that Dr. Tapper doesn't spend so much time nailing down the precise amount of alcohol consumed. But when we sat down with the hepatologist, what we learned was that there were certain populations that are at higher risk for ALK-HEP. And this sort of resonated for me because I've seen plenty of patients who develop ALK-HEP. They don't fit that standard bill of three to four drinks a day for the last six months. Now, there are certain people that can get sick with less amounts of alcohol. Typically, these are biological females and two, those with gastric surgery. So gastric sleeve, Ruin Y bypass. These are highway tickets to alcohol hepatitis. Okay, so patients with a higher risk of ALKEP are going to be those assigned female at birth and status post bariatric surgery. But any ideas why alcohol has such a higher impact on these patients? So it's thought that after bariatric surgeries, the same amount of alcohol actually results in a higher peak blood alcohol level and that it takes more time to eliminate that alcohol. And to put some nice numbers to it, one study found that for women with a Rowan Y bypass, drinking two beers actually resembled the blood alcohol concentration that you'd expect after four drinks. And some of this is thought to do to the bypass of a enzyme we forgot about uh, from med school, gastric alcohol dehydrogenase. Ah, of course, gastric alcohol dehydrogenase. You know, Shrey, if I had a nickel for every time someone mentioned gastric alcohol dehydrogenase, you know? <laughs> I know, oh gosh. All right, it actually similarly rears its head a little bit with the whole females being at higher risk. 
So females, they have differences in how hepatic alcohol dehydrogenase is distributed and also differences in body compositions. This is all good food for thought because there are definitely some patients who drink so much and never develop alcap. And there are other patients who drink much less and then develop the disease. And you're like, this is just like a great injustice. (laughs) Yes, yes. Injustice and very unfair. So there is definitely a genetic component to this. You know, there's a strong genetic component to this that primes them. And then you get a secondary insult, which is alcohol. Again, almost a relief to hear to give some reasoning why some patients get it and some patients don't. All right, Marty, we covered a lot of good ground. Do you want to recap for us? It would be my pleasure, Dr. Trevetti. So the diagnosis of alcohol-associated hepatitis is often a clinical diagnosis, usually having that classic AST to ALT pattern with an elevated bilirubin higher than three in the setting of recent significant alcohol exposure, usually within two months of their last drink. Since ALCAP is an immune response, these patients will also have vague complaints of malaise and anorexia. And be wary of the bariatric surgery patients because they may end up with twice the blood levels of alcohol for any given amount of alcohol consumption. Most importantly, when you see these patients, don't forget to ask about their drinking triggers, which will help you a ton down the road when it comes to long-term prevention. Okay, so say we have a patient who presents with significant drinking history, their total bilirubin's like 14, they have elevated liver enzymes that aren't over 400, case closed, right? No? What else should we be thinking about? It is incumbent upon you to broaden your mindset and not have premature closure on one possible thing when your patient has very high liver enzymes because, in fact, Tylenol toxicity can kill your patient faster than alcoholic hepatitis, as can a stone in the common bile duct. Yet, you will meet people that might fit the bill, they've been drinking too much, and they have a very high ALT or AST. In that case, you have to be mindful of a differential diagnosis, which includes, yes, they might have alcohol-related injury, but they could also have drug-induced liver injury from medications, supplements, or illicit drugs that have been used. They could have acute viral hepatitis. Kind of sounds like they could have choice E, all of the above. A patient can have both alcohol hepatitis and Tylenol toxicity, acute viral hepatitis, or a stone in their common bile duct. So they are entitled to break that rule. And the rule that patients are allowed to break here is that the AST and ALT levels are typically less than 400. If we have a lot of things going on, patients are allowed to shoot those ASTs and ALT all the way up. So making sure they don't have a mass in their liver or a big uh, portal vein uh, thrombosis, which can lead to very similar clinical pictures. There may be some other things to consider, like autoimmune hepatitis, Wilson's, or if the patient's pregnant, thinking about help or acute fatty liver of pregnancy, or if you're stranded on some standardized test question, naturally mushroom poisoning. You got to watch out for that death cap. Uh, yeah, yeah, apparently, apparently. But we should not forget about the most important thing that we should be assessing for. Your patient with alcoholic hepatitis has about a 20% chance of dying from their disease. And what are they going to die from? They might die from bleeding or renal failure, but more often than not, they will be dying from infections. So when I see a patient with alcoholic hepatitis, I put a light, I shine a light in their mouth. I look at their legs, the back of their legs, the front of their legs, 
for cellulitis, for puncture wounds. And I'm constantly searching for uh, a potential cause of something that could lead to sepsis. It is not unheard of for patients that I admit to have dental extractions during their hospitalization for abscessed teeth. It is extremely common that patients will go on to develop bacteremia from even the smallest seeming sources of cellulitis. So I'm constantly scared of the possibility of missing an infection in my patients from things that might seem benign to you and others. And both of our peer reviewers wanted us to emphasize to please, please get that diagnostic paracentesis on any admitted patient with ascites regardless of their white cell count or regardless if they don't have a fever or even if they don't have abdominal pain. Yes, 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 yes to that paracentesis. I just want to point out though how tough it can be with a differential diagnosis because a lot of these patients will meet SERS criteria, but no obvious infection is found. And I think it's just a humbling reminder that not all SERS is sepsis. At the same time, the alcohol toxicity makes the immune response more unrestrained. There's less of a lid to put on the immune response. So you're all SERS and uh, nothing to tamp that down. I feel that. I mean, these patients are so sick and being quote unquote all SERS all the time is pretty much always going to make me nervous, infection or not. Yeah. And the other tough place that we find ourselves is thinking that this is acute alcohol-associated hepatitis, or if this is just kind of cirrhosis worsening in front of our eyes. So, you know, alcohol-associated liver disease is a spectrum. So you have a hepatic steatosis, uh, then you have alcohol-associated hepatitis, which is a severe form, um, acute and chronic uh, liver failure type form, and then you have alcohol-associated cirrhosis. Now you can have, to make complicate things, you can have alcohol-associated uh, alcohol hepatitis on cirrhosis, yeah, so I really pushed the hepatologist on this. And to normalize just how hard it is, Dr. Tapper told me about a patient he saw in clinic way back during his intern year. He hadn't had a doctor for many, many years. And I noticed that he had decompensated cirrhosis, that he had jaundice. And when I got the labs back after I'd gone home, I realized I forgot to get an INR to do a discriminant function. But because his Billy Rubin was high and he reported to me excessive alcohol use. I sent him to the emergency department to get an INR. And if it was high, we could potentially start steroids. But after the dust settled and I had a therapy session with the consulting hepatologist, I came to the realization that we just didn't know his trajectory. It was new to me. But if you ask, he's been sick for a very long time. And it was the judgment that this was progressive liver function just based on the gestalt of the clinicians who had seen him. So to answer your question, there is no rule uh, by which we can distinguish these two things. I really appreciate hearing this because sometimes, especially, I don't know, Marty, if you feel this too, when you get down to the assessment section of your H&P, you're like, okay, this person's been drinking regularly. Was there drinking enough to cause this acute inflammatory immune response? Or is it just that cirrhosis getting worse? And if I had thought clearly, it was clear that he was sick. And it was, but he was presenting to me with an illness that had not gone away. He was presenting because of edema and ascites that had been lasting a few months. And the jaundice was really an incidental chronic feature of his presentation. And it was correct in the end to not try corticosteroids. 
So it sounds like we need to understand who this patient was in the past and just think about, does this situation look and feel like a new inflammatory state or is it a more chronic and progressive worsening that's happening? Shrey, can I echo again the desire for a single diagnostic test for this illness, please? (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. I hear that. Let me just wrap up what we're hearing so far. So the diagnosis of ALK-HEP requires you to send off a HEP A, HEP B, HEP C, serum acetaminophen levels uh, for imaging, that right upper quadrant ultrasound with Doppler to rule out a biliary obstruction or even a thrombus or a cancer in the hepatic or portal vein. And please, please, please look for infection. Yes, get that serum chest x-ray, blood culture, UA, diagnostic paraf needed. But Also every day, right? Do a good skin exam. Look at their mouths. Look at their tushes. Ask about tooth pain. All of the above. (music) On to treatment. I got to be honest with you, Marty. After talking to Dr. Tapper and Dr. Patadar, I've actually really changed my practice on what I focus on with patients. Right. So this is the part of the podcast where we talk about the age-old prednisone versus pentoxifiline, right? And maybe we'll throw in a Lille score for lactulous and giggles, right? Oh my goodness. Not quite, right? So what if I told you that there was something actually more important than pentoxifaline and prednisone? I don't believe you. I know, right? But I can't wait for you to hear this. It's actually nutrition and alcohol cessation. Really? Yeah, yeah. Let's tackle nutrition. Nutrition is the first line therapy in the management of alcoholic hepatitis. And Typically, what we're doing is we're trying to make them eat dense, high-calorie, high-enriched foods the entire time that they're with us. This involves, at a minimum, making sure that they have snacks at night and hopefully between meals. The people who are most likely to die from this condition are those who are not meeting nutritional goals. So really cool pathophys pearl that I learned why these patients get so malnourished. So in addition to just a majority of their caloric intake being alcohol, one fun fact to know is that alcohol actually gets metabolized first and then impairs the absorption and digestion of other micro and macronutrients. So alcohol is just this like big bully in the gut. The biggest bully. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. So we know why they're malnourished. I'm guessing the next steps here are like feeding these patients, right? Yes. And I love how Dr. Tapper has an honest conversation upfront about the trajectory of ALKEP and the possibility of nasojejunal feeds. But what you have to do is begin from the beginning, which is to say they are very sick. They're at very high risk of dying. The only thing that is going to keep them alive right now is time to recover. And the only thing that will allow them that time is freedom from infection and, and nutritional support. So because those are only two tools that we know are truly proven to save their lives, we have to meet those goals. So I will start out slow. What would you like to eat? If I can get rid of sodium restriction to help the patient, I will do that. If their family wants to bring in food, let them do that. If they want to eat nothing but boost or ensure, let them do that. But after setting a goal, failure to meet that goal in the next couple of days should be paired with an honest discussion about the role of a tube to save their life. I have to say, if it was any other patient population on the floors, I try my best to avoid NG tubes. Come on. It's just so uncomfortable for the patients. But actually, after hearing Dr. Tapper, I am sold and kind of like walk in there now and be like, okay, 
we got to do this. Give me some lube. <laughs> Shrey is now one with the NG. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But, so, so what did Dr. Patadar and Dr. Tapper say about how much we should actually be feeding our patients with Alcap? The calorie count that I want for this patient is something like 30 kilocalories per kilogram per day. And then I want to make sure that before they go to bed, they're having a snack that has something like two to 300 calories and some protein in it uh, so that they have that and they're not fasting overnight. And just want to emphasize that a good amount of those calories should be protein. So now actually my practice is like to talk to them and tell them, hey, order that chicken go for that Greek yogurt. I'm actually like, I think I'm like obsessed with them being like, Hey, do you eat that Greek yogurt for breakfast? You, you sound, you sound like my mom checking out on me. Like, are you, Marty, are you eating? I don't believe you're losing weight. That's doctoring for Alcap now. <laughs> Going back to pathophysiology, why is nutrition important? So whenever you're in a starvation state, your lining of your gut on top of alcohol causes even more disintegration of your gut barrier by keeping your gut alive, by giving it nutrition can help prevent this part of the path, uh, help uh, alleviate uh, this part of the uh, pathophysiology. Ah, so powerful to think about. Keeping the gut lining together with nutrition, this is a pretty vicious cycle, right? Because these liver injuries cause an extreme catabolic state and all that increased energy expenditure will only worsen the malnutrition. Right. Okay. So the moral of the story here is not to overlook nutrition. Right. And the second critical pillar for the treatment of ALCAP is addressing the underlying issue, drinking. Remember, this person has liver disease because of alcohol use disorder. So while this person is in the hospital, it is a critical time to discuss with them relapse prevention. So this is in your wheelhouse. It is not something to be deferred to the outpatient setting. And every extra step that you can go, talking to the patient, talking to somebody that they're friends with to help them get a ride to the relapse prevention, prescribing the pharmacotherapy that they can use as a bridge when they get home, all of these things are well within your power. And props to Dr. Tapper for encouraging us to start medications for alcohol use disorder, or AUD, in the hospital. And you better believe we're going to talk more about this in just a moment once we throw back the alcohol use disorder treatment episode in Pearl 5. But Marty, this made me reflect on how often we'll put in a social work consult and these patients get a list of alcohol cessation resources. And a part of me wonders, you know, is that enough? And of course, by that time, I'm too busy with the next task or next page. But I appreciate how Dr. Tapper challenged us to be an extra touch point, say, for example, on the next day on rounds. So closing the loop, What did you think about that? Which of these locations works for you? Is there somebody who's off work and can take you at that time? All of that is reasonable. All of these things are going to be helpful. Okay, so why don't we recap the real treatment for ALCAP? It's going to be making sure they are getting adequate calories, which is 30 kilocalories per kilogram per day. And the second part of this is run towards the alcohol use. Take an alcohol use history to prepare patients for success after discharge. And whenever possible, link them to treatment, which can be medications or groups or counseling. That extra nudge is for sure worth the effort. And one last extra nudge from Dr. Tapper. I am desperately asking you to make sure that there's extra snacks on that patient's table and that somebody is counting how many calories they are eating. All right. 
finally, to steroids or not steroid? That is the question. (laughs) Enter Stop AH. The broadest, most rigorous evidence base for it is from a trial published several years ago now called Stop AH or STOPA. And this is a two-by-two factorial trial that looked at prednisone and pentoxifiline and placebo. It's why we know that pentoxifiline uh, does not work. And in that trial, prednisone was associated with improved 28-day survival, but not 90-day survival. So this means it's not a parachute. This means it is not necessary for us to use. So that is a very subtle but important learning point regarding steroids. They have shown an overall trend in mortality, but we have to remember that steroids are not silver bullets. So classically, the very simplified teaching is to consider steroids, and there's a strong emphasis on the word consider for patients who have a high MADRIS discriminant function of over 32. Any um, thoughts here on using MELD? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because this is a new teaching point for me that MELD is actually coming more and more in the forefront as a better prognostic score. And you can also start thinking about steroids if you have a MELD score greater than 20. Interesting. Okay, so whichever score you're using, right? Madri or MELD. I always seem to find myself torn about starting steroids. Like, is the patient not sick enough or are they too sick? What I found comforting was that both hepatologists we interviewed emphasized the importance of not rushing to start the steroids. Take a step back and realize that there is no time to prednisone metric that you're being judged by. Now, if you wait two days and the patient still is sick or their bilirubin is rising and you feel like the prednisone makes even a greater difference now, then you haven't hurt that patient the benefit from that prednisone has not been reduced. So do not rush this. If you never gave that patient prednisone at all, you are not hurting that patient. This is, these are marginal changes in, in 28-day outcomes. So don't beat yourself up so much about this. Take it slow. Don't overdo it. Wow. I wish I had heard this years ago. And if most of these patients are going to be dying from infection, in ALKEP, steroids can do some real harm. Yeah, so if there was an initial concern for infection like pneumonia, when can we start steroids if they are indicated? 10 out of 10 hepatologists agree that you at least have to have the infection under control. So you've started antibiotics and you've seen that the patient is at least stable before you start to think about prednisone. So this applies to pneumonia, urinary tract infection, SVP, bacteremia, all of that. But if they get acute, if they get sicker, at that point, you have to stop steroids. Um, you, you know, infection is what's going to take their lives at that point. Okay. So if I'm actually pulling the trigger on starting steroids in a patient with Alcap, which is honestly a little tough to do, but here we are. What about which steroid to use? There is a classic teaching point that we often hear being thrown around. We give prednisolone, not prednisone, uh, because uh, prednisone has to be converted to prednisolone, and that happens in the liver. If the liver is sick, it's not going to do that. Yes, and I may have said this myself too before, but turns out this is all theoretical and basically meta trivia. Honestly, the reason why we use prednisolone so much is that it was used in landmark trials, and now that's what we do. But in practice, prednisone and prednisolone actually have similar efficacy. And if you want some cool pathophys backing, know that the enzyme in the liver that's converting prednisone to prednisolone 
is actually also found in muscle and in fats. So that can help too. Wow, Shrey, you know, we should just start calling ourselves the Core I Am myth-busting team. (laughs) (laughs) Another segment. (laughs) So if we start steroids, how many patients do we expect to actually respond to this intervention? And are there certain groups that are more likely to benefit? We know also now that about only about 40 to 60% will actually respond to steroids. The people who I think are most likely to benefit are those who are young, who are women. And I, I, I see that the alcohol trajectory is relatively compressed within the last year or two. That's where my gestalt tells me I, I've got a more resolvable, reversible condition. Okay, so we have plus or minus a coin flip on response rate, and I'm prioritizing steroids for younger women and patients with a more recent alcohol history. Right, but this is not a set it and forget it type of intervention. The little score when it was first arrived, look at day seven uh, changes from your baseline to your to your day seven line. A single center study look, uh, looked at day four little score, and what they found that day four little score um, works just as well as day seven. But one caveat to that study was it had very large uh, confidence intervals. So you have to put the whole clinical picture into it. What I do is I start it and I follow that bilirubin. If the bilirubin doesn't fall by day four, we're done. That, that, that person is not going to benefit from the prednisone. Now, this is best articulated by the Leal score, which is just basically watching the bilirubin fall, but having a formal calculator to put in the chart for that. And I make that decision in four days. I love it. Now I like to arm myself with some numbers to just make it easier for my brain to translate what the Leal score actually means and maybe even help me communicate it to my patients. A score less than 0.45 indicates a good response to steroids and the patient has greater than 80% chance of surviving at six months. If the score is greater than 0.45, then they have, uh, they're not responding to steroids and you need to stop. And, and at that point, their survival is, you know, maybe 20% at six months. Wow. That is a pretty shocking survival difference. I mean, 80% versus 20% based on pretty much a bilirubin trend. Wow. Well, don't get too ahead of yourself because Dr. Patador did give a caveat to the Lille score, and that's how age is factored into the Lille score. I would say one pearl that I've been, that's been passed down to me is sometimes because of how age factors into it. Sometimes a little score will be unfavorable, but you're looking at their bilirubin and it's like, oh my God, it's actually decreased by 40%. In these patients, you could consider continuing steroids, long as they have close follow-up where you can get labs, making sure they're not getting sick or infected. Okay. So especially with older patients, interpret the Leal score with a grain of salt and potentially look at their bilirubin independently. What this means is that if a patient is older and has a significant improvement in bilirubin, it might actually be reasonable to continue steroids despite a Leal score of greater than 0.45. All right, Trey, I think it's time to wrap this one up. Yes. We've covered a ton of ground. So typically consider steroids if we have a matrix discriminant function of 32 or a melt of 20. It's really the bilirubin that's going to be the most important prognostic test, which really drives allele score, which can help you on day four and day seven make a better judgment if steroids are actually helping, if you should continue that 28-day course, or if you should stop it. For me, I think the most important takeaway from this section is that there is no rush to starting steroids. And you really want to be sure infection is ruled out or under control. So for this pearl, we have a throwback all the way from 2018 
to the treatment of alcohol use disorder. We were just thinking that we would replay the whole episode for you all at like a three times speed, right, Trey? (laughs) I don't know if that's a good idea. I uh, kind of agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. Let's just start with the main points. First of all, we know that overall, we do a very bad job at prescribing pharmacotherapy to decrease alcohol cravings. Yes. I was surprised to see that the recent study of over 35,000 patients with cirrhosis showed that less than 2% were started on medical treatment for alcohol use disorder. So talk about room for improvement. So with that, let's get into the meds. The first line pharmacotherapies for moderate to severe AUD include naltrexone and acamprosate. So naltrexone is thought to work on the reward pathway to blunt that anticipatory excitement that people with alcohol use disorder typically experience before drinking. And one thing I love telling my patients is that the number needed to treat is 12 to prevent returning to heavy drinking with naltrexone. Yeah, that was an impressive response rate. Now, the question that comes up a lot is, can we use this in patients with cirrhosis? You know, this is a little controversial because it's emphasized over and over again that we should be using this with caution in severe liver disease. But we should say there was fairly unanimous agreement by our hepatologist reviewers and interviewees that using naltrexone is safe, even in patients with severe but stable liver disease, which was definitely a learning point for me. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that hepatologists have been using naltrexone to treat patients with cirrhosis, but it got me thinking maybe we overstate the caution behind it because if we think about it, the risk of not treating alcohol use disorder typically outweighs the very theoretical risk of elevated transaminases. And we'll link to some of the data in the show notes. And of course, more robust data is evolving. But I think for me, the big takeaway is to focus on other things that are real contraindications to naltrexone. So concurrent opioid use and asking our patients, are you using drugs or a plant in the future? And two, avoiding naltrexone in situations and in patients who are at high risk for delirium tremens or DTs just because naltrexone can be so effective and using more caution if they're at risk for severe withdrawal. This is all good food for thought. And the second first line option is a campersate. So this is thought to reduce the physical and the psychological discomfort like sweating, anxiety, insomnia that many alcohol-dependent individuals experience when they stop drinking. Important thing to note is that it usually does take five to eight days to take into full effect, so good to start on the earlier side. Right, and, and other than taking a little bit to get reach full effect, The other bummer here is that acamprosate is a three times daily dosing medication and is contraindicated in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 30. I use both naltrexone and acamprosate fairly commonly in clinic, and it's worth noting that both of these meds have GI side effects. With naltrexone, it's more common cramps and kind of upset stomach, so I encourage patients to take with food. Acamprosate is a little bit more common to have diarrhea, so it's just another heads up that I give my patient, and it usually gets better after a period of time. Mm, That is always a good heads up to give. Okay, now onto the second line options, topiramate and gabapentin. These meds are reasonable options, but you do need to push the dose for both, making their well-known side effect profiles a little bit more relevant when you use it for alcohol use disorder. So with this pair, remember you're going to talk about cognitive fogginess when you use it at those high doses. Ah, oh, yes, cognitive fogginess. I like that term. The third option we only touched on briefly in that episode was baclofen. Surprisingly, this is the only medication that's been studied with patients with alcohol-associated liver disease. The last group is this whole uh, collection of kind of avant-garde therapies, including the psychedelics. Since recording our alcohol use disorder treatment episode, 
A recent paper was published in JAMA Psychiatry that supported the effects of psilocybin in reducing alcohol use. Yes, so this study showed that patients receiving psilocybin plus therapy reduced their heavy drinking days from 23% in the control arm to about 9% in the intervention arm. Far out. But seriously, (laughs) that is kind of exciting. All right, let's wrap up this episode with one last takeaway from Dr. Tapper. The key take-home messages about alcoholic hepatitis is one, this is a condition with a very high mortality rate. And although the hospitalizations can be long and there's not much action, what happens in those day-to-day encounters The connection that you make with that patient has the capacity to change their life and to save their life. And that means linking them to alcohol use disorder care and making sure that you have addressed their malnutrition, their risk of variceal bleeding, and the like. Finally, I need you to be terrified that this patient has an infection. That means making sure you see their naked legs, that you've looked in their mouth, and that you are constantly suspicious that you're at risk of the patient sabotaging you, developing an infection in a focus where you've just auscultated, where you've just looked at them. You will turn your back on them and they will they will get you. You have to be very worried about infection. So if a bilirubin suddenly spiked in the middle of the hospitalization, I am immediately thinking about infection. And with that, that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team, your colleagues. Please give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find us. And a huge shout out to our peer reviewers, Dr. Allison Kaplan and Dr. Alan Bonder. Thank you to Doc Spatia for the audio editing, as well as Dr. Sam Woodworth for the accompanying graphic. As always, we love hearing feedback, so email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions.